Hey kiddo, welcome to the Inspire to Engage podcast, where we talk marketing for small business owners, how we can serve our existing clients well, and ways for us to engage more with potential clients. And of course, we'll talk some about the juggles and struggles to do all of this while still having a life. I'm your host, Rachel Eubanks, and I'm so happy that you're here. This episode is with Sarah May Dickinson. She is a sales coach with over 15 years of experience, and it shows. She has analogies. She has examples. She has words of wisdom to lay on us small business owners about sales. See, many of us have a hard time when it comes to sales and even talking about it. But the reality is, if we're going to be a business owner, then we have to be good at sales. We have to be able to sell our our goods and services. Otherwise, we just have a really expensive and time-consuming hobby. So here we go. A couple of questions that I ask her. What is the difference between marketing and sales? We also talk about pricing because let's face it, some of us are scared to raise our prices because we fear that long-time customers will leave us. But she has some great advice for pricing. I really love that part of the episode. I also ask her to tell us what are two or three things that we should do right away if sales doesn't come natural to us. This is another one of my favorite parts of this episode. Honestly, this whole episode is one of my favorites to date. I think you're going to get so much from it because we even talk about plateauing. What if our sales have plateaued? She's got a great answer for that. And what about scaling our business? We want it to grow, but we just don't have any more time in the day. She also has advice for those of us that are looking to scale. When you get finished with this episode, you are going to have some things to do. If you want to be better at sales, you're going to have some things that you're going to want to do. And I love those type of episodes that we can walk away with advice, get to the business of doing. Okay, without further ado, here is Sarah Mae Dickinson, episode 20. Okay, Sarah, I am so happy that you are here today. Sarah and I came to know each other kind of through a domino effect. Mm -hmm. And a couple episodes ago, my friend Lisa Smith talked about the power of one, the connection of one. And this is a great example. Starts with my business coach, Melody Thorstrup. And if you've listened to this podcast at all, you've probably heard her advertisement on it. Well, So I know Melody, and then from Melody, I was introduced to Stephanie Whitlow, who is a fantastic technical writer, and then she introduced Sarah and me through conversations and saying, hey, you should get to know know each other. So I think that's a great example of that power of one, just getting to know one person, and then it just goes from there. And Lisa's point is, is that you can do big things for your community and for your business just by being brave and connecting to one person. So Sarah, that is a fun fact about you and me and how we came <laughs> Hi, to friends. talk. Yes. And so anyway, Sarah, I want you to tell the listeners about yourself and about your business, how your business came to be. 
Sure. So hi, new friend. I did not even know Melody was your business coach. So exciting. Um, <laughs> yay! So many fun people. So hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Mae Dickinson. I am a sales and business coach and own and operate SMD Coaching. I have been in sales for 15 plus years. Um, it's what I did kind of naturally. Both of my parents were in sales. My mom was a real estate agent. My dad sold cars and insurance. And I grew up around it because I graduated in 2010. I entered into sales because it was the only job I could get and have done everything and anything in between. Management, training, recruiting, supervising, telephone raising. But in, let's see, 2016, I met my husband and he was given the amazing opportunity to work virtual. So because of that, we moved to a place of the country where cost of living was much, much lower. And I got the chance to do something I love. I accidentally stumbled upon the fact that people needed sales coaching and started working with some folks, introducing them to the, not only the systems and the practices that I use, but really leaned on everything I've learned in all of those different environments to help folks who are entrepreneurs and freelancers who have zero sales experience, bring that into their business so that they can learn simple tools to increase sales, increase productivity, and bring a little simplicity and joy to their life. Okay. So I, and I'm sure the <laughs> listeners need all of that right there, Sarah. And so we're going to dive into that in just a second, but I happen to know that Sarah has a fun love story. <laughs> I got to, we were talking and I found out pretty quickly that she wasn't from Alabama. And I said, how did you get here? So just for fun, Sarah, share with them how you landed in Alabama. So I grew up coming to visit North Alabama. I'm originally from a very small town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the Coal Mountains. And my sister, who was 10 years older than me, married a lovely gentleman who ended up, was very, they were very young at the time. He ended up becoming a professor at the University of North Alabama. So from 13 on, I spent every summer coming to North Alabama. And not many people from Pennsylvania do that. <laughs> After I graduated from college, I lived in Philadelphia for a decade, you know, went on a lot of first dates and was on Tinder and a very handsome gentleman popped up and he had an Alabama hat on. And I was like, who on earth in Philadelphia <laughs> has an Alabama hat on? Lo and behold, it was my future husband, Adam, who was living in Atlanta at the time. And we only matched because he was up visiting friends in Philadelphia an hour outside the city. And because they came to visit the Rocky statue of which I lived three blocks from, we matched and lo and behold, found out he was from Decatur, Alabama. And in that first conversation, I said the word muscle shoals. And he was like, who is this strange girl that even knows what that means? And that is how we started talking. So Alabama is the reason we kind of even started chatting in the first place. Oh my goodness. See, I <laughs> love that story. I said, Sarah, that is a wild story. I want you to share it with the listeners because it's just, it's just amazing to me how, like you said, Alabama actually connected you and you guys are here uh, now because you can work remotely and yeah. like the cost of living here. We're so happy that you're here. <laughs> Thank so, you. Welcome. And I know you've, you've been Thank here for you. a while now for several years, but yeah, we're glad that get you're me here. used to it. <laughs> okay. So let's delve into this conversation about sales. I want to ask you, what are the biggest obstacles, whether it be mental or otherwise, that you see small business owners facing when it comes to sales? Mm -hmm. 
So there's a couple of things. So I've been thinking about this a lot, and I feel like one of the biggest struggles that we have mindset-wise as humans in general is thinking that sales is a bad thing. You know, we grow up with the idea, and I was very guilty of this myself, thinking that a cheesy used car salesman or kind of a, a, a yucky kind of person is the person who's a salesperson. And in reality, the reason why I started working with and enjoy working with sales newbies is because sales is life. Understanding mm. that getting the job you want, getting an increase in your pay, um, getting your kids to eat broccoli. I mean, it's literally all a sale. So learning some of the simple mindsets of that and just bringing it into your regular atmosphere is really, really life-changing. And then I think the other big side of that, you know, once somebody goes into business and they realize that they have to sell something in order to make money, is that they don't follow the sales funnel. And there's a lot of things we can talk about in the sales funnel, but realistically, it's just like the sales process, right? It's, you know, someone becomes aware of you, you have a first introduction, you create rapport, that leads to maybe a consult or someone coming to your store for the first time, and then eventually that leads to a sale. And so often people, when they kind of jump into realizing they have to be in sales, they've been in business, they know that they have to sell something. They think that that, that whole situation is someone becomes aware of you and then they just buy something. They don't realize that there's like a lot of steps in between and most sales take quite a bit of action to get there. And sometimes we lose that as part of the way. We don't realize that the steps in between are just as important to not only something someone buying something from you, but becoming an evangelist, giving you testimonials, and then working their way back around the loop and hopefully buying something from you again. Okay. So I have a lot <laughs> of notes written down over here because those thoughts really spoke to me in the sense yeah. of what I needed to hear. Mm -hmm. Definitely about the mindset. You're right. We oftentimes do think of it to be cheesy, mm -hmm. and, but that's not the case. Your example about the broccoli was right on. We do, yeah. we constantly as parents or as dog owners as, or as whatever, teachers, whatever, we do have to find ways to get people to quote unquote buy what mm -hmm. it is, whatever it is we're selling. Mm -hmm. And the sales funnel, it gets talked about so much in the business world that it almost becomes watered down and we don't think about the fact of how important it really is to take people mm -hmm. through these steps or to understand that it takes time. Yeah. That, that well, it's rare. Go ahead. Oh, I'm so sorry. But it, and it's also constantly re-examining that funnel. Mm -hmm. Like you should be re-examining your sales funnel at least once a year because your story's going to change. Your products and services can change. And quite frankly, your target audience can change. And I'll talk about this, I'm sure, a thousand times, but COVID is a great example, right? COVID, I've been talking about with clients for months. One of my clients is someone who works for a Chinese-based firm. So we've been chatting about COVID for a long time, but it's a great example of how this can occur because COVID happened and all of a sudden your target audience may completely change or they may need something like wildly different than what they did before because of the circumstances that are happening around them. If you as that business owner just keep continuing doing the same sales process, the same sales funnel, the same marketing process, you're going to result in sadness and not really know why that's occurring. So COVID's an extreme example of that, but it's something that you have to re-examine regularly in your business to know that you're doing the right thing that's going to guarantee you the success that you want. Let me ask you this. Yeah. I loved your idea of re-examining it. Yeah. And I'm constantly in my business 
talking about copywriting and knowing your mm -hmm. ideal client. And I even really encourage people to have conversations mm -hmm. with their clients. So I want to know, because for that reason, you've got to know them. Well, I want to know what would you tell a business owner when they say, okay, it's right. I've got to re-examine my sales funnel or the process that I'm taking people through to buy from me, what would you say is the number one thing they could do in order to re-examine it and really to understand maybe where the breakdown is or maybe where they are being successful at bringing people through that funnel or through that process? Mm -hmm. So the biggest thing I encourage going back to, if you don't already do it to start doing it now on a regular basis is following and tracking what's called the law of average. The law of average in very, very simple terms is how many people you need to talk to in order to make the sale. And realistically, most businesses never really track the steps of those sales funnel, right? So for me, a great example is how many subscribers I have, how many subscribers lead to a consult, how many consults lead to a signed client services agreement, and how many client services agreements leads to actual clients, right? That being said, I track every single month how many of those I have, each and every single one of them, so that I can start to see patterns in the numbers and understand where the breakdown might be. If I have 15 consults a month and that only leads to me sending out two terms of service, something's wrong. I'm either mm -hmm. consulting the wrong people, I'm not doing well in those consults, I'm not asking the right questions, or I'm not selling myself right. If I send out you know, 15 terms of service and only two people sign up, something completely different is wrong. They're not getting the message right. The terms of service and the information that I'm sending out is wrong. The emailing is wrong. So tracking what you're actually doing, how many clients you're seeing, what that's resulting in is the thing that I always go back to because it helps you really understand it and take the emotion out of things. And I'm a very emotional person. Mm -hmm. So it's helpful to see um, patterns emerge in the numbers and the data and be able to understand your target audience better because of that. And the other thing I see in target audience, and I know you talk about this a lot, but paying attention to what other people are doing, like in your community. You know, if you start to notice, I get nervous, and I'm sure everybody does, about competition seeing what you're doing online. But it's important to have a community of folks that you trust, because if they start talking about something really different, or they're kind of hitting on things that are different than you, or you notice that they're selling more than you, you really got to pay attention to what's going on because something is changing in the field and maybe you don't completely see it coming and you want to be able to have some lighthouses out there that can give you an indication of what's going on. Okay. So thank you so much for clarifying what it is that we can do in order to truly re-examine mm -hmm. our sales funnel and think about it in data format almost. Yeah. I'm like you, I'm very emotional and I'm sure that somebody will understand this when I say that I actually have to pump myself up to look yeah. at stats for oh, myself. Yeah. Like I have to really say, Hey, you've done the best you can, oh, yeah. Rachel. You've got to go look at these stats. Now you've got to jot them down. And if I can just get to that point, you're right. It does become numbers, mm -hmm. but I have to get to that point. And mm -hmm. then the numbers, especially over time, really do start to reveal patterns and we can do something with patterns, whether think, no matter what it is going on in a business. Well, and what you just said is so important because the, the scary part about sales is the same thing as the scary part about data, right? Once you start to examine that kind of stuff more regularly, it becomes less mm -hmm. about you and less scary. It becomes more about a solutions-based model 
versus a scary beat yourself up model? Because I'm sure you're starting to see that in your own data as you re-examine it regularly, right? Again, going back to my example, if the first two months I did it, I have 5,000 you know, new subscribers and two consults, it's less about like, man, I suck so bad. It's more about what's going on in my you know, subscriber stuff that's causing people to not transition, to not use that call to action to the next part. What can I do differently there versus beat myself up, hurt myself? So the more regularly you look at that stuff, the less it's about you suck and more about their real solutions in this information. Perfect point. Perfect point. So that kind of leads into my next question because I actually tell myself and my clients that marketing, because it goes back to what you were talking about with that mindset of solution-based, this, I like for people to look at marketing almost like an experiment, almost a science. Yes. There are, it's definitely creative, but there is a science to it. And if we look at marketing as, Hey, this is an experiment that I'm going to try. I'm going to track it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see how it's going, you know, track it over extended period of time. Then it does feel less personal when it doesn't work out the way we want it to. Mm-hmm. It looks more like, Hey, I learned from that. So mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question. What is the difference between marketing and sales? We know that they're related, yeah, but they're different too. Mm-hmm. So marketing and sales are interesting because they are completely different animals, but they are married. It's okay. really important that they work together and in conjunction with each other or else you can't have a successful business. I personally view it as marketing is how people know about you and sales is what you do once they know about you. Okay. Like it's what you do once they, they know you, they're doing something with you, they're here. Okay, you got to do something. So they work in conjunction because there's some overlapping details that you have to understand in a big way or else neither will come across right. One is your target demographic. If you do not understand your target demographic, marketing doesn't matter and your sales are going to be wrong. So (laughs) always, always, always understand that and dialing in more on it. And then Mm -hmm. the other one is your elevator pitch. If you don't really understand what you're selling, it literally doesn't matter that you're selling to the right people. So you have to constantly know that you are selling what you're selling, what your story is, what your product and services are and why you're selling them and merge that with the correct group. And that's when you're going to see success in those two things. But marketing is really about just, in my opinion, and I'm sure obviously you have a lot of thoughts on this and I'm excited to hear them, (laughs) but marketing is about like just getting people to know who you are in that right target demographic with your story, with your right information, showing them your products and services. And then sales is what you do with those people, getting them to convert. You can't do one without the other because if you market great and you don't sell, you're not going to make any sales. And if you sell great, but don't market, you're going to be working all the time because you're not going to have any leads coming in on a regular basis. Okay, Sarah, that was beautiful. (laughs) Honestly, that was beautiful. And I actually agree with your definitions. Mm -hmm. I do struggle in the sales area. And that's Mm -hmm. why I was really excited to hear your thoughts on that. And so to hear how you paired it with marketing and at the same time versus marketing Mm -hmm. made a lot of sense to me. And I hope it makes sense to listeners that, like you said, they have to work together. Yes. But they are different. It was beautiful to me. And I appreciate it. And I've got all kind of notes over here again. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just to kind of piggyback off of that, you know, simple things that I work with my clients on, you know, sales and marketing should be married in the sense that 
your elevator pitch should be the same across every platform you use. The kind of copy that you use should be the same across every platform that you use. The kind of call to actions that you use, the coloring that you use on not only, you know, your marketing side, but all your sales material, everything that goes along, they should not be confused. It should not feel like two separate things. It should feel like one entity that's working together. Totally agree there. That's the thing about using multiple platforms is that we sometimes feel like we can change it up a little bit because we're on, yeah. Hey, I'm marketing here versus marketing there. Your core message, yeah. your core branding, the colors, the wording that you use yeah. has to stay same wherever you're marketing. And then when you do get them really close and they're like, okay, what do I do next? You've convinced me your sales have to match what it is because they came to you through your marketing. And that's what they're, 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 they're going to expect to see that same language, that same branding in your sales. And you're right. It's going to lead to confusion if that's not what they get when they, when they land there in the sales. Well, just okay. only to conversion, because if you're a fun, flirty consultant, and then you're ramming them in the face with your packages and your pricing to sell it, like that's never going to make sense to people. So again, like going back to the data, you're going to see stuff like that coming through and saying, something's wrong here. My marketing's not matching what's happening on the other end. And there's a breakdown that we have to fix in between. I love the fact that you keep coming back to data. I need that. <laughs> I need that. Okay. Data, data. Okay. So let's talk about pricing for a second. Mm -hmm. Is pricing a part of sales or is sales more about the techniques and the mindset and what we've talked about the fact that your marketing needs to match your sales? What are your thoughts about pricing? I have a couple thoughts about pricing. And one major, one major thought comes in the sense of if your product is, if the thing you're selling is a product or a service. I think the biggest mistake we make on the service side, and I know a lot of us folks are in service-based industries. So I think the biggest mistake we make in the service side is that we're afraid to charge the prices that we need to, number one. And then when we do charge the pricing that we need to, or we want to charge the pricing that we need to, we don't realize the actions that have to go along with that to sell it. Sometimes we forget when you're not holding a physical product, but you're asking people to pay, you know, $125 an hour. You got to be really clear about what that means. Like what the first year looks like, what that package entails having pieces of, you know, downloadables or, or stuff on the front end that they can get a, a sort of pseudo experience of what being with you is like. You know, sometimes I work with folks who, you know, they want someone to pay $3,000 for a package. And then I'm like, okay, well, what does that first year look like? And they're like, oh, well, it depends on what they need. Nope. That's not a thing. You have to be incredibly clear. If you want to charge those kinds of prices, if you want to charge the prices that we all want to be able to pay to charge. You have to have the experience, the education, and the rapport, as well as the information to back that up. And then on the, not only on the service side, as well as the product side, I think the biggest mistake we make in pricing is that we price ourselves out of a good life. Here's what I mean by that. So <laughs> I talk to people a lot. One of the first questions I ask of, of my clients is how much money they want to make in a year. 99% of people say $100,000. Okay, great. Super duper easy. Then we break it down from the math. Realistically, we all can work 85 hours a week, but realistically, there's about 20 billable hours in a week. If you divide, and I'm bringing up my calculator right now, 
If it. you divide 100,000 divided by 50, God forbid you have two weeks vacation, divided <laughs> by 20, that means that you have to be making a profit of $100 an hour. Mm. Okay. So I make my clients every single time go through the exercise of understanding how many hours they're willing to work per week and dividing that by how much money they want to make per year. See, a lot of times I run into folks who are selling, you know, what's an easy thing like earrings, selling earrings for $12 an earring, right? And it takes them a half an hour to do. Well, guess what? That's only a profit of $24 an hour, not including how much money you've put right. into Cost it. of goods. Exactly. Paying yourself. Yeah. And then you get to the end of the year and you wonder why you're working your butt off and only making $40,000. Like that's why that ends up happening. So one of the very first things that you need to be doing when you're understanding your pricing structure is understanding how much money you need to make to have the kind of life that you want and working your way backwards from there. It not only gives you clarity on what kind of life you're going to have, but the ability for your business to be able to truly run if it's going to be the profitable in the way that you want it to be. If you can't meet the kind of numbers that you want to, you got to find another product or find services or products within that field that you can add to your profit portfolio that allow you to reach those kind of numbers. Okay. You preached it right there. I mean, <laughs> I loved it and I'm just sitting here soaking it all in. Mm -hmm. One thing I hear a lot too, in, and I think this, I think I know what you're going to tell us, go back and look at the data. And that's exactly what you did when you started with the pricing is that you took yeah. out the feel good of like what I want it to look like. No, let's really get the calculator out. Let's look at the number. So once again, it was about going back to the data, but I hear a lot of pushback sometimes from clients and other colleagues to say, Hey, I want to raise my prices, but I'm afraid no one's going to buy. Mm -hmm. Or I raised my prices on that. It didn't sell very good. So, mm -hmm. you know, it must be the price. When you hear that, mm -hmm. what do you say back in those situations? Yeah. So that's a great question. So sometimes pricing is an AV test kind of game. You know, you got to kind of figure some stuff out when it comes to pricing. You know, I've worked with clients who, one in particular who did like men's essential oils and like things like that. And he realized he had his price low because it, things didn't cost very much and nobody bought it because they thought it was a crap product because the pricing was too low. So sometimes, you know, it's AV test. The other flip side of that is when we want to raise our prices, which we all need to at some point because mm -hmm. starting out, you're not going to charge much because you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, right. Um, so we all need to raise our prices at some point. The reality of that is if your confidence level, if your information and your materials and your understanding of the product go along with that, you will be shocked how many people stay with you on that. I personally grandfather people in for a year when I raise pricing. So whoever I have can stay with that. But the reality of the, of the matter is if, if your actual product, if it's you, you know, if you're ready to be at that price point and you're confident about it, not many people are going to be able to turn you down based on that. And the real thing that I see people run into a lot is not budging on that. If you want to charge $125 an hour, that's what you charge. And if someone can't beat that, that's fine. But, you know, I have packages and if you want to do a month or you want to do six months, that's cool. But that's what the options are. Mm. 
Okay. I like that. So being confident in yourself mm-hmm. and not budging. If that, if that is the new price, that's the new price and Correct. sticking, sticking with that because that does come with a level of confidence. I also think that comes with being in business mm-hmm. a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. I also, what are your thoughts too on this? That sometimes when you do step up in pricing, does that mean a new target audience? Sometimes does that leap push you to look again at your marketing? Think again about that sales funnel and how much, how much you're talking to somebody and how you're bringing them in. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say yes. For the most part, as your service products, it doesn't matter. As you increase in price, presumably that's happening because something else is going along with it, right? Mm -hmm. Your education level is higher. You have a better quality product. Uh, maybe you're offering more services, you know, something's happening to create that portion of your, your business to open up. And if that's the case, you should always be dialing in on that target audience more. So if you're increasing your price and not changing your target audience, that might be the reason that you're having people say no to you. That might be the reason that people can't do it because you're going after the wrong market. Yeah. yeah, the wrong people now for what you are. And that's fine. Just because you've grown out of a target audience doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Sometimes it's a really good thing. Sometimes it means that, you know, your confidence level has matched up to your education your and your experience. Yeah. Right. So it allows you to get there, but it's a really important thing to re-examine and say, was I just charging too low for this target audience? And now I'm matching what's there? Or am I now charging a rate that I have to realize two things. Number one, I might have a different target audience. And number two, my convert rate might be a little bit lower just because less people can afford me now. And that's fine. That's part of increasing your price. Having less people for more money is, is always a nice thing. Yeah, always a nice thing. <laughs> yeah. So it's not, it's not a bad thing either way. It's just realizing that that kind of goes along with it is very important. And in that same regard, maybe so much of it you know, I've gone through this in my business, maybe increasing your price isn't necessarily equal to completely deleting that part of your target audience. Maybe it means that you have to add on a product that allows those people to buy at that rate. For example, I am now at a rate that some people can't afford and that's okay. But what I'm doing to combat that is creating my first online class so that folks who maybe need a very specific topic or can't afford the price point of me one-on-one have options, have a place to go, can still get information and help. I just might not be able to do that at that one-on-one price. Right. And I talk with clients too about that, that especially for mature businesses, Mm -hmm. you really do have two and three and possibly four target audiences. And it's exactly like you said, Sometimes if it's, sometimes it's a product and it really is product lines speak to different people. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you're service based in the sense that you really do offer several different levels of services Mm -hmm. and therefore because of the price point or because of where they're at in their business to need you, it does lead itself to a different target audience. So now as a business, you're now talking to maybe two or three target audiences. Mm -hmm. And so that's a great point too. And pricing is so tough for us business owners to get our heads around because Mm. I think we're so afraid that people aren't going to buy. So sometimes we do, what did you say? Price ourselves. You had a great line that said something like out of a good life. Yes. We price ourselves out of a good life. Mm -hmm. And 
you'll do that for a year or two and go, oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I can't I'm do real this tired. anymore. I'm really tired <laughs> and, and I'm not liking the, the money that I see coming in. So yeah. it, it happens. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, let's say that you were working with a client that really struggles with sales. What are some of the first things, the first two or three things that you tell a client that you think is going to get them heading in the right direction? So I work with clients who have been in business for 10 years and I work with clients who have an idea and started their business yet. It doesn't matter where you are in that level. I make every single one of my clients restart with me by rewriting their elevator pitch. And I think that's incredibly important because just like your target demographic, you should be re-examining your elevator pitch every six months. You change, your product change, your story changes, your why changes. I also have people start with that because there are a lot of things in this world we can't control. An elevator pitch can be memorized and can have muscle memory behind it. So the fact that you don't have it memorized is really just a detriment to you and you alone. That in conjunction with the second thing that I work with every client on is objections and how you respond to them. Mm. Most companies, and this is every single company on the planet, most companies, about 80 to 90% of their objections are completely predictable. That to be said, you can also create some muscle memory around how you respond to things like price, experience level, where you're located, you know, really simple things. There are going to be things, don't get me wrong, that potential clients say that will just be like back crazy. Like well, yeah, you're like, yeah, what? yeah, you're like, what? <laughs> what is happening? But most of them, like your elevator pitch or how much your pricing is, should not be one of them. Those should be things that are wildly easy and give you the confidence to know that you can do really st simple stuff like network go out and have a booth somewhere. Like the really simple things that can start to get you going off the ground are memorizing that elevator pitch, feeling comfortable with it, feeling confident with it, and then knowing the real basic objections because obviously those are gonna be the questions that you get right after an elevator pitch. Knowing how to respond to those can really eliminate a lot of the scariness that goes along with that beginning of stairs. I'm so glad you said this. I often tell people and I say, look, I don't want you to laugh when I say this, <laughs> but I want you to go home and practice your elevator pitch in front of oh, a yeah. mirror or, oh, yeah. in, or in the shower. And I even do it when I'm going, sadly, we don't go to events now, mm -hmm. but when, before we hop onto a virtual event that, you know, you're going to introduce yourself. I actually practice that elevator pitch multiple times because you're right. A lot of times we get nervous and clammy. And mm -hmm. when someone says, what do you do? We blank out. Mm -hmm. And right there, I, the point I think you're making too, that sales is a lot about confidence. And so right there, if you just boom, come right back with, I'm glad you asked, this is what I do. And you go right into that elevator pitch of two or three sentences, then right there, you have put yourself in a much better place for mm -hmm. you personally and for the person listening. But what you said about the muscle memory is so powerful because when we get nervous, mm -hmm. we clam up. And this is a real life example that has nothing to do with business. I have a very dear friend who lost her daughter to leukemia. Uh. And prior to that though, she lost her hair and 
she, the wigs, you know, of course are just so hot. Yeah. And my friend said, you know, Rachel, she just doesn't want to go out without her wig. She just doesn't know what people are going to say. And I told my friend, I said, have her practice when, mm -hmm. when young children say, because mm -hmm. one of the things that would get her off guard is when young kids and her daughter loved young children. And so young kids would say, well, where's your hair? Or when even adults not being mean, just like, oh, I see you've lost your hair. Boom. I mm -hmm. wanted her to have a two or three sentences that came back and answered that question really quickly. It showed her confidence in the mm -hmm. fact that this is where I'm at in mm -hmm. life. This is what I'm dealing with, but it moved the, it moved the subject on. We didn't, mm -hmm. they didn't hang out there anymore because 100%. of the memory, because of the memory muscle of knowing 100%. And that's something that's so important in objection responses, because that's, that's a really like heartfelt and real reason why that needs to happen in the, the silly, you know, sales side of it is one of the biggest things that we do in an objection response is repeat, reassure, resume. And part of that is to get that person to stop thinking about the objection and move on to like the next thing. And that's what that sweet girl was doing. You know, that girl was like, can we just move on to the, like yeah. the good stuff. Once you get that thing popped out of that person's brain, it kind of doesn't exist anymore. It's like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're on to the next thing and we're right, moving, and on, moving that. on. So exactly. you know, it, it allows that kind of, that's the whole point of it is to kind of, you know, the, the next step shuffle, if you will, like getting them kind of to the, moving them along, dancing them along to the next thing. And that's a beautiful way to kind of illustrate that. I'm sure that gave her a lot of confidence and a lot of comfort, you know, to not deal with that kind of stuff. I gave that real life example and it's a very hard example to give, mm -hmm. but it, it did work and help, but a lot of it comes from the confidence of us being yeah. able to say that and for her to be able to say that too. And you're right. And, and to get people to move on and be like, Hey, this is reality. This is what I do. Or this is the objection. This is reality. Mm -hmm. Here's the next thing. And let's move on. I like what you said. You said, repeat, reassure. Is that repeat, what were your reassure, resume? Okay. Um, and so resume. Repeat the objection. Reassure them that you know how to fix it and then resume the sale. And I actually have a free downloadable on my website, both for the elevator pitch and objections. So those are up that people can go and get a downloadable that kind of helps them work through those a little bit. And tell them really quickly too, on your website, it, does it say something like downloadables? I will definitely yes. link to your website in the show notes, but when they get there, they'll be able to find these pretty easily. Yes, it is under, if I go to it right now, learning resources. Okay. And you have downloadables and blogs you can use. Awesome. Thank you. Those are great examples. Let me ask you this too about objections, mm -hmm. especially for new business owners. Most yeah. of us that have been in business for a while, if we're aware, we start to figure out what, what the pushback is. Mm -hmm. And, but what about brand new business owners, the mm -hmm. people that are mm -hmm. in the idea phase, where do you tell your clients to go and get these objections so they can practice? Yeah. So first and foremost, for new business owners, 90% of objections revolve around price or quality of the product in some way, shape or form, right? One of the things that I do with my clients, and I love that you talked about, you know, saying your elevator pitch in the mirror. I use this app called Marco Polo. It's like a visual walkie talkie. Yep. I make people do their elevator pitch on there. I give them objections. You know, I do different things like that. I literally tell people when you're first starting out, Go to as many networking events as you can. Trial by fire is the most wonderful way to have to get used to doing this on a regular basis 
because it allows you to really kind of understand what people care about and understand what people need. And something that kind of goes along with that in the networking side or in, you know, the trial by fire side, anytime you do an event, if you're doing a table event, if you're doing a networking event, you know, whatever it might be, you want to, and again, this kind of goes back to the marketing side, mm -hmm. you want it to be at the kind of event where your target audience is hanging out. Mm -hmm. A lot of people make the mistake of just going to random networking events. And I'm like, well, who's at them? And they're like, well, business owners. And I'm like, well, that's a very broad term. Like we want to be able to understand that the kind of people that are actually going to object to us, the kind of people that are actually going to buy from us are going to be at those places. So trial by fire as much as humanly possible and practice with your friends, family, whoever you might think is going to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have a strong sister or a strong BFF that is willing to tell you, you know, the harsh stuff. Use that to your advantage because I tell you what, finding out from a friend that you're not understanding how to promote your pricing is a lot better than a possible client and losing a sale because of that. That's a great point. I tell people, and this is really hard for me, but it is great practice. Mm -hmm. Start by telling your family and friends first about yes. your business because number one, it just takes that load off of you. A lot of times we're more embarrassed to tell our family and friends about our business than some random stranger mm -hmm. because we don't know that random stranger, mm -hmm. whatever. But if you start with that close circle of friends and family, they are going to come out with more questions than you as a person had ever figured out. You're like, well, duh, I, I just told you what I do. And they're like, yeah. no, I don't understand what you mean by blah, 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 blah. And that firms, it firms things up before you even head out and learn even more from. That's a great yeah. point. That's a great, great point. And Rachel, the, the time that I see that the most, so I did this really nerdy thing for a long time called mock trial. I thought I was going to be an attorney, loved it, you know, that kind of stuff. Anywho, in that you learn how to give directs, crosses, and openings and closings to what's called a lay person. That's what a jury is. It's a, it's a jury full of lay right. people. Good it point. means they are not experts in the field. They don't know the law. It's all of those things. That's why you need to do your business proposal, your elevator pitch, your ask them for objections from your friends and family, particularly if you are selling to a really specific market. You want to talk to people who are even outside of that market because mm -hmm. they're going to ask you questions and you're going to realize that you might not be explaining things in a way that are simplified as they could be. So mm -hmm. even getting that resource from friends and family that don't know your world, you know, maybe you're like, oh, I'm not going to talk to my husband. He don't know what I do anyways. Do it because you want to understand what kind of questions come from a person like that so that you can be prepared for it in a real way. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and you talked about the lay person when you were talking yeah. about what a, a jury is. We know in marketing and in sales, yeah. you have to be as plain spoken to the point. We live in a saturated market. And if yeah. you continue to talk all around your product, mm -hmm. talk all around your service, you're cute and using random taglines, they're just going to move on. And so you're right. If you can be over-prepared, then perfect. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would much rather you be over-prepared and feel like you're saying it too simply. I talk very fast and I am very loud and I have a lot of energy and it's taken me many years to realize that you need to talk slow in your brain. You need to sound like ridiculously slow so that other people understand it. 
The same way goes for storyline, the same way goes for your elevator pitch. Everything needs to be simplified to a point where you think it's silly simplified, and that way it's actually going to come across correct. Perfect then. Perfect then. Yeah. Okay. So we need you to be. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I have one or two more questions for you. I appreciate your guidance so much. You have given us so much great information already. Okay. A question that you get a lot Mm -hmm. is how do I scale my business? And I want you to to first address what does scaling even mean? And then if someone comes to you and say, but I want to scale my business, Sarah, what would you tell them? So scaling is an interesting concept, right? Because we all hear that term, scale, scale, scale your business, scale your business, scale your business. So much of it, first and foremost, comes back to understanding in a really deep way what you really want. I just spoke about this a little bit in my last couple of blog posts, but it's June, believe it or not, we are halfway through the weirdest year of our life and it is time to gut check your business, right? Gut checking is super duper important because you have to regularly gut check what's happening to know if you are happy in what you're doing, how much money you really want to make, what you want your lifestyle to be like, what you want your day to look like. And I say all that because scaling your business is hand in hand with that conversation, right? You know, a mistake that we all make when we start is that we're really upset that our Instagrams don't look like, I don't know, Sarah Blakely of Spanx, or we don't have as many followers as Jeff Bezos. You know, like we're upset that our businesses don't look like that. But when you take a moment and realize, well, I don't actually have to be a billionaire. If I make 200,000 a year for the rest of my life, I'm going to be pretty happy. That scale looks wildly different than someone who wants to make a million dollars and work in a hut in New Zealand for the rest of their life. You know, like that's a really different conversation. So understanding what you actually want, first and foremost, how much money that means, what your perfect day looks like, what you want the balance of your family to be like, where you want to live, all those things go along with scale. So that's really important to understand first and foremost. The other big thing that I get is that, you know, I've been in business for two, three years. I just feel like I'm all over the place. And scaling, I don't even know how I would scale because I feel like I'm using every moment of the day, every single day, and I just don't even know what to do. So in that situation, there's a couple of places that I want people to go. Number one is, are you using the tools to simplify what you're actually doing so you could scale your business if you want to? And those tools include a CRM, which is a client relationship management Management. tool, something like HubSpot, Salesforce, I use one called HoneyBook. Depends on what you need, but research CRM and start thinking about that. Another is something which I'm sure you talk about a lot, something like the Sprout Social or the Hootsuite, a um, management tool for your marketing side. And then a third is something called Canva, which I use all the time. I know you love you some Canva. (laughs) Finding those simple tools, number one being a CRM, that integrates what you need, that allows you to actually scale in a real way is super duper important. You can't scale until you have the tools behind you that allow you to do that. Because sometimes scaling isn't about selling more. Sometimes scaling is about freeing up time so you could actually take on more clients if you wanted to. Most of our problem when it comes to scale is not necessarily making more money, which we all want to do. But most of our problem is that we couldn't even take on more clients if we wanted. 
So starting with those tools, starting with the CRM, starting with something to manage your marketing better, starting with something like a Canva is going to be a place that allows you to scale and bring on more clients and think about those things in a way that gets you farther than you would have thought. Okay. That's very brilliant to me as you made a point. Sometimes scaling means to free up time so that you could take on more if you wanted to, because I know, especially, and you've probably felt like this in the past too, with service-based business is that you really do get to a point that you're like, I cannot work with anybody else. I've got to sleep at some point. I want to see my family. And so your point about using tools wisely makes a lot of sense. And I know it'll make sense to listeners as well. Use the tools around us that we have. Well, okay. The other thing on that really quick, you know, another side to that, because you mentioned something very important in service-based business, time can become your best friend and your worst enemy. But you get to a certain point in your business, if you want to scale, sometimes those of us that want to make more sales, you have to realize that there's a lot of activities that you do in the day that have absolutely nothing to do with sales and starting to understand that you have one of two choices. You can either start hiring and or getting those out to people that can do them better than you in less time or, and basically stop overheading yourself to death Mm -hmm. or you have to realize that you can't make as much money because you want to be able to do those in-house. That's really something that a lot of people don't realize when they're starting a business. A lot of hours of the day, and that's why earlier when I referenced how many hours you really have in a week, you only have about 20 billable hours. A lot of hours in the day are spent doing stuff that have zero to do with sales. Mm -hmm. You know, some of my clients I've talked to about very seriously because they're like, I'm just so busy. I do all this stuff. I don't understand why I'm not making sales. And I'm like, well, you're overheading yourself to death. You're not doing anything that's actually related to sales. So sometimes scalability, and you kind of pointed out right when you were talking about, you know, hours in the day, sometimes that's too. It's about alleviating some of those responsibilities that keep you from sales, that keep you from doing those things. And it all starts with kind of, you know, not only having those tools, but really thinking about what you want to spend your time doing. I don't know if you've read the book Free to Focus by Michael Hyatt, but he actually spends a lot of time talking. What you're talking about is recognizing what it is that you want to spend your day doing and what you're good at, what nobody else. I really can't get a contractor or a freelancer to do it as well as I do. This is an integral part of my business. You're going to have to do those things Mm -hmm. versus delegating. And that's definitely something I'm working on myself right now too. And I've also seen it somewhere and I wish I could give credit to it. It definitely deserves to be talked about here there. And I would like to hear your thoughts on it too. There is a fine line when you are growing your business, you know that you want to scale it. You have ideas for scaling it. We're going to follow through on some of the things that you just told us like a client management system, Mm. but then you're not quite there that you can pay to have the freelancer. So you're that bridge portion and that's a tough spot to be in. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it's a challenge and probably for a lot of other business owners, it's a challenge to promise yourself, I'm not staying in this bridge. I'm not staying in this point. Get out of it. Right. I either need to go back and just know where I'm at, have that deep conversation with myself saying, I'm not willing to pay people to do some of these things that I don't have time to do or that they can do better, or you're going to eventually 
get to that point and be able to pay, but staying in that middle ground, that bridge between doing it all and paying somebody, you have to really own that and then Mm. promise yourself, give yourself a date that you're not going to stay there forever. That is a tough part of scaling. Have you experienced that yourself as far as scaling your business? Mm -hmm. Do you have any words of wisdom that you could lay on me and the listeners there? Yeah. So something I do in my business that I suggest to a lot of people is that, and this might sound super psychotic, so I'm going to go ahead and just preface it with that. (laughs) I actually use color coding on my calendar to represent different titles within my business if I were to hire someone out to do them. So for example, I use like a light purple for everything that I would have a marketing girl do if I ever hired one. I have, you know, green represent everything I would have an accountant do if I ever hired one. And the reason why I do that is because I want to see how many hours I am actually putting into certain things throughout the week and being able to say, okay, I charge this much. This is how much that time is worth to me. Because I want to be able to understand in reality, you know, sometimes because we hate something, it's like, oh my God, I'm doing so much during the week. And we look at our calendar and it's, oh, that literally only takes two hours a week. Well, that's interesting. So that's a great point. Yeah, that's really not worth me hiring somebody for $700 a month to do. But you start to do something and you're like, wow, I spend 10 to 15 hours a week. Like a great example is marketing, right? We're generally working on posts and and blogs and Mm -hmm. things like that. I spend a good probably 10, 12 hours a week Mm -hmm. working on that. Believe it. Mm -hmm. And while that is not super something I love, it also, because I color code my time, has made me realize that nobody could do it the way that I do it. Nobody could have the same voice. Nobody could do the same thing and really do it the same function. On the other side of that, if taxes, you hate doing your taxes, right? Who loves doing their taxes? On the other side of that, if you know doing your receipts, doing your taxes takes five hours a week, every single week, that's 20 hours a month. If you find out that it only costs 200 bucks a month to have somebody else do it, all of a sudden, because you're actually looking at the time and you're understanding how much you charge an hour, it goes, oh gosh, I'm going to go ahead and take care of that right now and find me somebody to do that and bridge a gap that gets you a little bit closer to that life that you want. I think sometimes we make a confusion where it's like, it's all or nothing. Like either we're waking up at seven and we're casually writing for three hours and you know taking a dip in the pool or we're doing everything for our business. Like there's no in between. Sometimes it's about leveraging the few things that really bog you down and allowing your brain to open up for the stuff that you need to be involved in, even though you don't like it. And I use that through color coding my own personal calendar to to understand in a real way how many hours I'm designating to what. I love that. I do not actually think that's crazy at all. I think that's a very smart. I always like to put a, a warning out there, you know? <laughs> no, I think it's very smart because like you said, it lets us really be honest with ourselves about how much time we are spending on that. And then you're right. As a business owner, it gives us something to base our decision off of. Yeah. Data. It goes back to data. What you and I were talking about earlier in this recording, we now have a real something to really base our decision off of. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we realize, oh my gosh, I hate it so much, but I really did only spend an hour and a half on it. Yeah. I'm just going to do it and move on. Yeah. And there's so, exactly. And there's so many in-betweens to stuff like that. It goes back to understanding what your per hour is really worth and then what that is in transition, always steps in between that can get you closer to something. Maybe it's not so much, 
again, marketing is a great example because people spend a lot of time on it, but you know, maybe it's not so much of, okay, well, I can't hire somebody to do my marketing, but you know what I could do? I could hire a photographer for 300 bucks a month and put myself in a really better position and feel like I have actual stuff to post regularly and not be just like sitting there staring at my computer wondering what I'm doing. So there's always steps in between, but it does. It all goes back to data. It all goes back to understanding what your per hour is really worth and what kind of life you want out of it that equals where you want to be. And I like your point, and it goes back to purposely re-examining. You started off the conversation by talking about re-examining sales funnels, but you also talked about later on in the conversation, re-examining our elevator pitch. Yes. Really, it just comes back to re-examining. Always. I call it dialing in. And it's everything. Things. They'd be testing. It's, it's dialing and it's all of that, but you start somewhere and you just click, 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 click further to get to that really like, you know, you see those companies where you're like, man, they are just so specific and they get it and they know their target audience. Well, that means they've probably been at it for quite a while and they are re-examining regularly what that means to them and what it means to their product to get to that point. Well said, well said. Okay. I know that we're running low on time, but I do have one more question for you. (laughs) This is a, I can chat with you forever. This is very, I know I have so enjoyed this, Sarah. I'm like, just pour it on me, girl. This is good. What do we do when our sales plateau? This happens commonly. And then of course, with us being in COVID-19 situations, a lot of us have seen sales plateau or, or even worse, but let's talk about the plateau. What can we do as business owners? So most of the time, And obviously this isn't true all of the time, but most of the time when somebody's sales plateau, it means that they never had a sales process to begin with. Mm. It usually means that their product is either so good or was so needed that they have been able to grow and grow and grow and grow and have never actually thought about how they're getting clients, what they're doing once they have them how they're getting them interested in the product, all the things that kind of go along with that. A sales process is obviously something that needs re-examined regularly, if I could repeat myself, but do it <laughs> most of the time, if your sales are plateauing, it means that you don't have a sales process that's either ever existed or is working for you anymore. So you want to look at realistically how you're getting the people even interested in you in the first place and whether your product is still working for them. And again, COVID's a great example, right? So I heard this really fun story about the RV camper market. RV campers, when COVID came out, they were like, oh my God, we're gonna travel, blah, 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 blah. But because people have to quarantine, they could not sell them, rent them, get them away faster because people could drive across country, they could have their own restroom, their own shower, they could sit in the driveway of their parents and make sure their parents were safe, and then drive back home. That market literally didn't even exist six months Mm -hmm. ago. So there are things that are constantly happening in the world within your target demographic, the things that they need that will change what they want and how your product is used for them. So if your sales are plateauing, you need to look at what your process is to make sales in the first place. The RV story (laughs) is fantastic. Isn't that fun? And it's something I haven't thought about. Well, another great example I heard when COVID happened, because I've been obsessed with all these businesses that have been like reinventing themselves, right? Mm -hmm. COVID's an absolutely terrible thing. But from a business perspective, it has been wildly exciting 
to see some of the fascinating things that people have come up with to get their product in people's hands. I saw a pizza shop in New York because obviously right at, at the beginning of this and in places like New York, sales just plummeted. Mm -hmm. So instead they started selling because people were home and they were with their kids and they didn't know what to do with themselves. They started selling literally pizza kits where they would do a ball of dough and the sauce and the cheese and the toppings by themselves. So you could take the whole thing home and make it yourself. So there's always a way to reconnect with clients, to get different clients than you had before or re-engage your product differently. It might take some creative thinking, mm -hmm. but plateauing just means merely that we just have to get creative. And that's my favorite part of it. And most business owners too. Yep. So if you look at it like that and say, okay, we just got to look at what's going on here and figure out what's happening. We can really change where this wants to go. You're right about that. Business owners are some of the most creative so people. Sorry. And we do get down and out about ourselves sometimes because we are overworked and we don't have a lot of margins in our life. Yeah. But you're right when we step back and talk to somebody like you who's energetic or we talk to other people in our niche or even people, I'm a strong believer in talking to people outside your niche too because yeah. sometimes what's working for them, you can't do exactly like that, but it spurs your thinking. You're like, oh my gosh, I could actually alter that a little bit and it can work inside of my business. 100%. But you made a great point about that. And I see this a lot with the creatives that I work with. A mm -hmm. lot of times what happens is that they got into business because of a hobby. They yeah. were, they happen to be really good at yeah. making necklaces or earrings or painting. And before long, they were selling it to their church groups or to their book clubs. And so they got into it by being a hobby. And before long, they looked up over a couple of years and go, oh, okay, we've got significant side income coming in or even full-time income coming in. But you're right. Then all of a sudden the plateau hits. You hit the nail on the head when you said, but it does come back to the point of never examining how do I get clients? Mm -hmm. Those just kind of happened. Yes. And so a lot of times they're because we're so busy trying to get that product out and keep up with demand. We did not take that step back and go, okay, so when I'm done selling to my book club or to my church group and then their, their friends, their next out, what am I going to do? How am I going to sustain this? Yeah. You make a really good point. Like when specifically when you're selling a physical product, right? So when I first talk to people, when they have ideas about what they're selling, the best thing that you can sell is something that goes down the sink and they have to buy again, or that something <laughs> is reusable because people have to come back to you over and over again. But if you're selling a product that is a piece of jewelry or something that they don't necessarily come back to you again on, you not only have to get creative, you have to think about where your clients are going next. A great example, the two doctors that started Proactive, it was obviously wildly popular. They sold it through the TV. They made a bajillion dollars and it was for teens. And when those girls got too old, they still wanted to buy crap from them. So those doctors went back to the drawing board, regrouped, re-looked at what those people would need in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and created Rodan and Fields with literally one of the largest MLMs in the country now. So sometimes it just means understanding where your clients are going to go next and what products they're going to need to fill out that line. That's an excellent point too. Follow their trail, their life trail, yeah. and can I provide something along that life path? Yeah. So that's a great point, and that does help combat the plateauing. Okay, Sarah, this episode was so good. It was full of 
actionable tips, which I'm a huge proponent of. It's, it's very nice to talk about the only thing I know how to do. (laughs) Right. It's great to talk about theory, but most of us as business owners, we've already talked about this. We're out of time. So we need, no, tell me what to do. And you did that. But at the same time, you also talked about the tougher stuff, the mindset things where we really do have to examine our business and we have to, and we have to examine it often not just every five years or not when we look up and realize that we're exhausted and we don't like where we see things going. We have to be proactive. So Sarah, I know people are going to want to know more about you and how they can get in contact with you because they're going to be blown away too when they hear this episode. Tell us how they can contact you. And I know you've already mentioned the the free downloads, but please mention your website again and where they can find those. Yes, absolutely. So my website is sarahmaydickinson.com. And there's free downloadables, blogs, all the kind of good stuff you might be interested in, as well as my Instagram is at SMD Coaching, and my Facebook is at Sarah May Dickinson Coaching. And I should say that May, she spells it one way, it's oh, yeah. M-A-E, okay? Sarah with an H, M with an E. Yes, very good, very good. So when you're looking up Sarah May Dickinson, be sure to look with Sarah with an H and May with an E. I would strongly suggest you guys following her on social and going to grab those downloads because Sarah has been doing this like she's talked about for over 15 years Mm -hmm. and been able to bring that corporate background into small business world and to bring it down to a level that it makes sense to us. We're like, okay, you're speaking my language. It only helps the fact that you're running your own small business we're recording on a Friday afternoon. So this just tells you (laughs) Sarah's dedication and willingness to speak with me. So I appreciate it so much. Okay. And I can't wait for you and I to talk some more. I'm excited. Yes. I'm so happy. And thanks for having me. It was really fun. I told you at the beginning of this episode that you did not want to miss this conversation with Sarah. Her advice is so doable. That's one of the reasons I love this conversation with her because she spoke to my mind blocks about sales, but then she also gave me actions to take in my business so that I would be better at selling. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I like to end each episode with some takeaways. And I'll be honest with you, my notebook is full, but I will keep it to three. Number one, key takeaway, data. Sarah mentioned that she was an emotional person. And so the numbers have really helped her make decisions about her business. I am also like Sarah. I take things in my business very personally. Now, I know on the surface that I shouldn't. I know that marketing and sales is all about experimentation. It's about the willingness to do A-B test. I know it's not personal. I know that it takes time to dial things in. But how many of you are nodding your head going, I get it, because our business is often feels like a baby to us. So it's easy to take things personal. But when we get in the habit of looking at the numbers on a regular basis, we can make clear decisions because we start to see patterns. That's the key is to look for patterns. That is even prevalent when we're deciding about scaling our business. She used numbers as a great decision maker for if we're going to hire somebody to help us with accounting or with marketing or with janitorial services. She gave us a great idea of as we do tasks that are for our business, be sure to color code them. And then as we make decisions about scaling, we're clearly able to tell 
how much time we really spend on a task. And we're able to compare that with the price it would take to pay somebody else to, to do that for us. That's a great example of using numbers to help us to make decisions about our business. Okay, key takeaway two, pricing. I loved that entire conversation about pricing. Many of us fear that by raising our prices, we're going to push people away. She spoke into that mindset about how we've got to change that mindset. The pricing thing was important. And what it boiled down to me was confidence. When we raise prices, we have to be confident about why we're raising those prices. We have to be very clear with ourselves as the business owner, what are customers going to get when they pay for X? And when we're confident with those prices, people are going to be more confident when they hear those prices. We're going to get less pushback. Now, might some people push back and leave our business? Of course, that could happen. Or we may realize that by raising our prices, we've actually created another ideal client from there. And that's a, that's fine too. It's very often that mature businesses do have two and three ideal clients. And it's because we often have two or three product lines or service lines. So the pricing thing is something that we do need to spend time thinking about, considering what it is that customers are going to get with this new pricing. But it's not something that we should be scared of as long as we've done the thinking behind it and know why we're doing it and being able to clearly communicate that with the people who buy from us. Okay, third key takeaway. I ask her, what are two or three things that we can do to be better at sales starting now? She said, number one, know your elevator pitch. Now, your elevator pitch is two or three sentences that tells what you do and the problem that you solve for people. So you want to get good at that and quickly be able to tell them, hey, my name is blah, blah, blah. My business is called blah. And I do this and it solves this. Now, obviously, it may sound more fluent than that right there, but you get the point. You want to be able to tell somebody what you do and the problems that you solve in two or three sentences. Sarah and I both talk about the fact you have to practice that over and over and over again. That leads to confidence. That word confidence has come up several times in our talk about sales today. It leads to confidence. You're able to just rattle it off. The second thing that she said we have to do is we have to note the objections that are going to come back at us. So we have to be prepared to answer those questions. Hey, why does it cost this much? Why do you only service this area? You probably know some of the questions already that you get constantly. Those are the objections. Those are the things that you need to be ready to answer. And just like with the elevator pitch, prepare those answers in advance. That being able to come right back with an answer puts you a step ahead. And then when they start delving a little deeper, that's fine. You're ready. You're prepared. You know what it is that you want to say. One great way to practice objections is to talk about your business with friends and family. Sarah used the term talk with a layman. Talk with somebody that's outside 
of your world. When you do that, you are going to hear back some questions that maybe you thought you already had addressed in the elevator pitch or you thought were common sense things everybody knew, but that's because that's your world. That is your world. You don't recognize what people who haven't studied this, done this for hours upon hours. So conversations with friends and family are so important to help us prep for those objections. And if you've been in business for a while already, you probably know some of the objections. But if you've been in business for a while and you know the objections and you haven't practiced your answers to those objections, there you go. Get with your friends and family. Tell them, hey, Ask me this question and be ready to come back with an answer. And then listen, do they have any further questions about your answer? Did you really answer the question in layman's terms? Okay, there's so much more I could talk about with this episode, but I'll leave you with those three key takeaways. I, You know I also end with saying how much I appreciate the reviews and the ratings and the subscriptions. As a business owner, you know those are vital to a business or a podcast or anything being successful. So thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you that have done it. And if you haven't, if you found value in this episode, please rate or review. And if you hit subscribe on whatever platform is that you listen, you will be notified when new episodes are published. I want to shout out a big thank you to YBR34. This was on Apple's podcast. She titled it Wealth of Knowledge. As a small business owner in this time where there are so many unknowns, I found Rachel's podcast to be inspiring and insightful. Listening to the episodes gave me the gusto that I needed to believe that all is not lost and there are things that I can do to compete continue my business during these uncertain times of COVID-19. Thank you for that, Rachel, and keep up the good work. Thank you, YBR34. Isn't it amazing what a few kind words can do for your soul? I needed that. If I'm being very honest with you guys, a podcast is a ton of work. It's also one of the fa- it's also one of my favorite things that I do. So thank you so much, YBR34, for taking time to write those sweet words. My soul needed those today. And if you are using this time, you are realizing you need to dial in knowing your ideal customer better. I would tell you, go to my site, inspiretoengage.com, and download the freebie, Know Your Ideal Customer Better. Now, it's a quick PDF. It's just a jumping off point about looking at your ideal customer as a human being, really starting to put a face behind him or her and recognizing the daily struggles and achievements that he or she probably feels due to the phase of life that they're living in. So head to my site, inspiredtoengage.com and look for that freebie. It's on, it's a pink button on the homepage. Know your ideal customer better. It's going to help you be more clear. It goes back to a lot of what Sarah talked about here in this episode, being clear about who you're selling to, but it all starts with good marketing, who it is that you are communicating to. And we do not want to be communicating to some great faceless blob. We want to visualize a real person receiving and reacting to our communication. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I so appreciate it. 
I hope you have a good week and catch you in the next episode. Bye.